0: This is a Crowd Podcast.
1: Stephen Davis here, with a bonus episode of the secret history of the Estonia. There's been an important update in the investigation, which I wanted to talk to you about. You might remember that towards the end of our series, we interviewed somebody from the new Swedish, Finnish and Estonian inquiry into the disaster the one that was launched after the TV documentary showed images of a never-before-seen hole in the hull. Well, there's been some key developments. The loading ramp has now been raised from the seabed after a six-day investigation of the wreck. We also understand that the area around the damaged hull, on the starboard side, was examined from inside the ship as well as outside, and that, crucially, a sample of steel has been brought back to port. The analysis of this metal could be key to confirming the theory about the explosion. We don't know how long it will be till any findings are released, but we're hoping they'll give us another interview once they've conducted their analysis. Until then, in this bonus episode, I'll answer some questions sent in to us from listeners. Producer Sam was on hand to ask the questions.
0: Hi Stephen, bit of a role reversal coming your way now?
1: Yeah, it's nothing that makes a journalist more uncomfortable than to be the person being questioned, I tell you.
0: Oh dear, I'll try and be uh, try and be kind. We've had some good questions in though. So the first one comes in from Alex Ridley and Alex would like to know a little bit more about whether the official investigation did any interviews with surviving crew members and if any of the officers on the bridge survived to explain their version of events.
1: Good question, Alex. Uh, The answer was yes. The Joint Accident Investigation Commission interviewed, uh, I think, six officers and crew, and they got some useful information out of them. Of course, like uh, often happens in these major events, some of the information was contradictory. A key interview was with Seaman Sylvie Lind, who was on duty... And was the person who, in his initial account, said he heard a bang, a loud bang, and went to investigate and saw water coming onto the car deck and alerted the bridge. Now, we didn't go into that in depth in the podcast for the simple reason that there were a number of contradictory accounts from him over the years. Whether this was a fault of memory or pressure being put on him or the translation of what he said by the people at the commission interviewing him, we don't know. We do know now that the new investigation by Jonas Bankstron, who we talked to in episode seven, is also conducting interviews with survivors in a more systematic way. So that hopefully will cast some light uh, some further light on what really happened.
0: Thanks, Stephen. That's really interesting. And then Alex had a follow-up question about the mysterious Estonian captain who we talked about in episode three, who disappeared. Can you tell us any more about, about that?
1: Yes, that's one of the great mysteries of the whole affair. Um, captain Arvo Pitt, uh, he was the second captain on um, Estonia that night, Uh, Captain Andreessen was on the bridge and Captain Pitt was traveling. His journey from Tallinn to Stockholm was uh, the final thing he needed to complete a Master Meritor certificate that he was studying for. Indeed, I think he was due to take the ferry into Stockholm Harbour on the last part of its journey and, of course, has never been seen since the night of the tragedy and officially went down with the ferry. But there was a lot of quite compelling evidence that he survived, which we outlined in um, our investigation, uh, sightings of him on an island after he was rescued, and the very odd business, which is to this day a mystery. That Interpol, the police agency, issued a warrant for his arrest after the tragedy. Why would they do that? Why would they issue a warrant for the arrest of somebody who had gone down in a ferry disaster? As opposed to issuing a warrant for arrest for, for a captain who had been seen, rescued, and therefore was somebody they were urgently seeking to talk to. I've uh, looked very carefully at the Pitt story over a number of years. And as we say in the program, I interviewed his uh, wife, now deceased, who was absolutely adamant that he had survived. Um, of course, in these cases, if you've lost a loved one, I understand that sometimes it can be almost wishful thinking. Um But it is very odd indeed that there seem to have been some confirmed sightings of them in a life raft and on the island where they were rescued. And very odd indeed that there's an Interpol warrant. I think that a a proper initial investigation of this by the Swedish and Estonian government should have included that, should have included finding out who issued the Interpol warrant. But it's one of many things that weren't properly done. So, as of today, Alex, we don't know for sure what happened to Arvo Pitt.
0: The mystery continues on that one. Thank you, Stephen. And this next question comes from B Lilly, and she was very struck by Carl Eric's description that the crew members during the sinking just didn't seem to know what was happening, adding to the, the sense of panic. And B would like to know whether an alarm was actually raised when the ship began to sink what the crew were doing during the evacuation and what actually happened to the captain? Did he go down with the ship?
1: Uh, um, yes, uh, good good questions all. So as far as the actions of the crew are concerned and the actions of the officers, these were criticised uh, in some of the official investigation. Some people think that the Estonia was going too fast for the weather. And there was a level of disorganisation after uh, the ferry got into trouble. And that contributed to the disaster. Now, I've studied a lot of big tragedies like this. And there are always examples of disorganisation and confusion just because the event itself is incredibly confusing. Some passengers' encounters with members of the crew they got good information and some passengers didn't get good information. We're talking about a lot of crew and a lot of passengers and a lot of people relying on their memories. So I, I think it's very easy, actually, for official investigations to deliver criticism like this, in a way, as I think it was a distraction from finding out what really happened to the ferry, because regardless of the actions of the crew, the key issue is why it sank so quickly. And of course, in sinking so quickly, with the best efforts of the crew on board, a lot of people died. If it had floated for longer, there would have been more opportunity to get people out. So the Estonia did send a a, a mayday call, and there was a lifeboat alarm. Um, and an alarm over the public address system and there was a coded fire alarm no general information was given to the passengers but again i have some sympathy with the situation and i should imagine if you were the officers on that ferry for instance and you got into trouble at sea you would not have imagined for a moment that your ferry would sink so quickly. So they were clearly caught by surprise. Of course, as the ferry listed quickly and most people were trapped inside, as you heard those terribly tragic stories that Samantha and I explored when we talked to the, the people who survived, Captain Andreasen, the captain who was on the bridge at the time, of course, would have been a crucial person for the inquiry to talk to, but he went down with the ferry. So we do not know for sure exactly what he did or did not do.
0: It's easy to forget, isn't it, just how chaotic it must have been with everything happening so fast, you know, with the whole thing happening essentially within 45 minutes.
1: Absolutely. I mean, if it had floated as long as other roll on roller ferries in equivalent accidents for hours or even days, of course, they would have, able to calmly get everybody off the ferry, but it it turned and sank so quickly.
0: A question now about what may or may not have been on board the Estonia, this one's from Jane Quick, and Jane asks, could the last-minute cargo have been nuclear or radioactive in nature? Could this possibly explain why various governments worked together to decide not to retrieve the bodies, to stop anyone from diving to the wreck? and covering the wreck in concrete. Uh, Jane suggests that perhaps these actions might make sense if there was something harmful in the wreckage, something that might still be harmful to this day. Interesting question.
1: Yeah, good question, Jane. First off, let's talk about the various theories about what kind of cargo was on board. It's important to note that there were a number of theories spread about the type of cargo including one that there was radioactive material on board, another one that there was drugs on board. And it's really important to note that these theories are traced back to Russian disinformation campaigns. One particular theory about radioactive cargo, the Russians put the blame on um, Chechen and Estonian gangsters. So those cargo theories are interesting because as an expert in the field, told me, why would the Russians go to so much trouble to spread so much disinformation about this? That's a very interesting question that, um, that should actually be explored in an official inquiry. My MI6 uh, source, who's absolutely reliable, and in fact, who told me about the smuggling operation six years before the Swedes finally admit to it, says the cargo that the intelligence services were bringing out was more in the line of electronic components and reports and details of things like missile telemetry, you know, how effective and accurate Russia's nuclear missiles were, very key stuff for an intelligence agency to know. So I think, I mean, I know there's no actual evidence of any nuclear or radioactive material. And the decision not to retrieve the bodies and to cover the wreck and concrete was clearly not to do with the type of cargo. It was to do with the Swedish government's rather abrupt reversal of its promise. They promised to bring the ferry up. It was a technical challenge, but doable. They promised to retrieve the bodies and then they reversed their position, uh, tried to bury it in concrete. The attempt, by the way, to bury it in concrete, just to repeat what we said in the series, was spectacularly unsuccessful, a failure in its own right. And, and that was abandoned.
0: Thanks, Stephen. Wow, that is fascinating about all those disinformation campaigns. We talked about that a little bit towards the end of the series, didn't we?
1: We did indeed. And um, I spent a number of years developing a course in misinformation and disinformation teaching at university. I spoke to a number of really serious experts about Russian disinformation, an amazing woman who worked and studied it at NATO, for instance. And, and everybody was struck by the, the amount of disinformation that they produced and relatively quickly about this, uh, indicating they actually had something to hide. Otherwise, why would they bother?
0: This next question comes from Wanda Armier, and they ask, why hasn't a petition been started to raise the Estonia and to recover the bodies?
1: Hi Wanda, in fact there has been a long and passionate uh, campaign um, of uh, pressure on the government of Sweden and Estonia. To recover the bodies you uh, may recall we spoke to Leonard, head of the victims association he's a man who has devoted most of his life to compiling detailed information on what happened what may have happened the gaps the things we don't know and um, with a group of other relatives of those who died and survivors, has demanded new investigations and kept the pressure on the Swedish government. Whether they will ever achieve the goal, I don't know.
0: They actually passed on to us, didn't they, an amazing dossier of evidence that they've compiled over the years, um, almost like an alternative investigation report, which was really useful in our investigation as well.
1: It was, and to be frank, it was more thorough and detailed than the original joint accident investigation report, I thought and raised a number of questions that that should have been raised.
0: Okay, so we have another question here. This one's from Louise. She is interested to hear more about our trip to Sweden and Estonia that we made when we were recording the podcast, and in particular what it was like to do the same journey across the Baltic on a ferry.
1: It was a fascinating journey. It was um, apparently one of the smoothest crossings ever, so we were lucky. I think there were a few interesting things I could tell our listeners. It indicated uh, the wonderful and meticulous organizational sense of my producer, Samantha, who as soon as we got on logged uh, where everything was, the, uh, the pathway to the lifeboats, etc. Whereas uh, the somewhat more careless reporter, Stephen, just went to his cabin. It showed us how big these things are. And actually, I thought, um, not being an organised person like Sam, how easy it would have been in an emergency to get lost, because there are lots of corridors, and there are lots of staircases, and there are lots of signs. But uh, as you know, Sam, we were extremely lucky. Um, in fact, I, in the middle of the night, I kind of looked out, and I thought, ah, we've stopped. What's happened? It feels so smooth can't even feel a wave. But no, we just had a very, very smooth crossing of the Baltic, which I later found, by the way, uh, the Baltic has literally hundreds of shipwrecks because it's notoriously rough stretch of water.
0: It's an interesting question from Louise because actually I hadn't thought about this for a while, but remembering it, I found it really quite eerie walking through those corridors because we... We'd heard a little bit about how difficult it was to navigate your way around the ship through the interviews that we had done. And then actually to be in the corridors, all of which look exactly the same and, you know, go on and on and on into the distance. I actually found it quite claustrophobic.
1: It made me even more impressed with our interviewee, Carl, uh, who managed to get himself from the very lowest deck up to be rescued i thought what a phenomenal feat
0: yeah because we went right down to the bottom didn't we to record we went way down to the car deck and even the sound of it down there it's everything sounded different it felt very heavy there's just a constant engine noise and to think like you said that he was running up those stairs with water rushing in behind him is really almost impossible to imagine and
1: and as we heard from him a combination of good luck And but his own determination, his own awesome determination. That was such a fantastic interview.
0: Yeah, absolutely amazing, man. Thanks for your question, Louise. This last question now, this one comes from Freddie, and he asks, was anything learned by the maritime industry after the Estonia sinking to prevent future ferry disasters?
1: Yes, that also is a very interesting question, uh, Freddie. The first thing about the lessons to... Be learned from the sinking and there are a few things which i'll go into in a minute but ultimately to draw conclusions from a disaster like this and how we can do things better of course requires you to have specifically identified the cause of the disaster but in terms of the behavior of the crew the training there were a number of things that have been done the crew on passenger ships Got training in crisis management. Uh, They have changed the distress beacons from manual activation to automatic activation, so the alarm goes off straight away. There is a a sort of black box now. They're called Voyage Data Recorders, like the black box from aircraft disasters, new life raft regulations, etc., etc. So things were done, as, as they should have been, of course, uh, because uh, you need to make sure that as many people survive if, heaven forbid, such a disaster happens again. Um, but my original point stands. If somebody deliberately sinks to, uh, seeks to sink your ferry and it goes down ridiculously quickly... Then, all the planning in the world is not going to save many of those people,
0: yeah, um thanks, thanks for that, Stephen. That's interesting to go through those those details. And then just a final question for me, I think, to to wrap things up, which is obviously you've been reporting and researching this story for you know a number of years now, and obviously you'd you'd worked on the television documentary as well prior to our podcast series. But I just wondered if there was one element that stood out to you perhaps from our trip to Estonia and Sweden, something that you didn't know before that you found surprising or that perhaps just just affected you differently, you know, being there in person?
1: Oh, yes, definitely. We knew going in before our trip, and I'd looked at it in the past, that there were people who had apparently survived but had never been seen again. And I had thought about that as a mystery. Sometimes, of course, there is confusion in disasters and the aftermath of disasters, like the fog of war. People just get things wrong. But I have to say, when we sat in a room with Helen and heard her story about the news they had received from her father... The fact that one communication was from somebody who said, he's in a hospital bed next to me, was just extraordinary and really raised a whole lot of other questions in my mind about what might have happened and the extent to which it was covered up. And the other thing was her pain. Her pain in that interview after all of those years still not knowing, still not having what we call closure, of course. It's easy for us to use that word, but for her it was very personal. Um, Yeah, that really affected me. And then later on when we went to Lynchburg and again uh, at the cemetery, looking at a gravestone and saying, well, I can look at that, but she's not there. Um, and, And that made me feel, to be frank, quite angry about the the rather dubious process of the official investigations, um, which have failed to conclusively say why the ferry sank, have failed to explain why it sank so quickly, have failed to explain the Swedish government's actions afterwards in trying to bury it in concrete, have failed to recover the bodies, have failed to provide any sort of responsible conclusion to such a major disaster so yeah that's what i remember
0: thanks for that Stephen, and thanks so much for taking these questions um and of course thanks everyone for sending us the questions and we really appreciate it
1: thanks sam and thanks everyone
0: crowd network a place where you belong